Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, while you have been enjoying your endless vacation, things aren't looking so good for the rest of us. As I have reminded you many times, Jennifer, it is not an endless vacation. It is a work-from-anywhere plan. Uh, So when we work went under, I don't know, did it go under? I assumed we work went under. And so I just took it upon myself to to make an office anywhere. So I'm joining you from an undisclosed location at the moment. You're joining me from the WePod studio. (laughs) That's right. The only reason it's an undisclosed location is I'm worried that you might show up if you knew where it was. Well, while you've been gone, I've been doing a lot of reading, including I you know, just finished reading a piece in Governing Magazine. This is the kind of life that I lead now. And it's it was called How Red States Got Their Groove Back. And they, you know, they have this long list of the kinds of legislation that red states have been enacting. And it'll be familiar to a lot of our listeners, all the legislation targeting trans kids, the many, many states that have now enacted bans on talking about racism in classrooms. And of course, something like 18 states have figured out ways to make it harder to vote. Now, one of the things that I have really wanted to try to try to figure out is why it is that so many of the states that are erecting hurdles to voting are also in the process of dismantling their public schools. And so, Jack, as is so often the case, I had a great idea. <laughs> Uh, I sometimes, Jennifer, I imagine you in the 19th century, and I, I feel like had you been born in a different era, that P.T. Barnum would just be a, a footnote in your biography. But go on. <laughs> Tell us more. I have been looking for an opportunity to trot out all those gunny sacks dresses I still have from high school. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, back to my idea. So I actually don't think I have the answer to the question of why we so often see the same states rolling back democracy and dismantling public education. I have a sense, but I don't have a sort of a a deep explanation as to the overlap. And so I had an idea. Why don't we get some people together who've thought a lot about it and let's put on a show. And in 21st century Barnum fashion, you wanted to bring in as large of an audience as we could. So we worked with the National Education Association, uh, which has, I think, over a million members, uh, to produce an event that included friend of the show, Derek Black, as well as friend of the show, No Leeway Rooks. And uh, we had a public conversation about the future of public education and the future of democracy. And you can imagine that with such a weighty topic, the conversation went on for some time. No uh, rub against my co-participants there. Uh, At some point, uh, you will be able to view the whole event in its entirety. But what we have for you in this episode is a distilled version. That's Jennifer's way of saying that she just cut out the parts that she likes and she'll be playing those and intermittently asking me questions that I'm likely unprepared to respond to. 
Now to the main event. Earlier this summer, Jack and I joined forces with Derek Black and Noliwe Rooks to really try to wrap our heads around this question of why it is that in state after state, we keep seeing the same combination of legislation that privatizes public education and also challenges how votes are cast and counted. We wanted to know what is up with that. So we invited some longtime friends of the show. First up is Derek Black. If you haven't read Derek's new book, Schoolhouse Burning, press pause right now and order it immediately. As you're going to hear throughout this conversation, these are old battles being refought right now, so we need to bone up on our history. It is the case that if you, if you look back at, at our founding, that ultimately two of the major pillars of, of our constitutional democracy are voting and education. The idea being that it had to be intelligent voting, otherwise uh, this system they had devised wouldn't work. And if you look at what today we see the attacks on voting and education, it seems to me as being an attempt to splinter two of the fundamental principles of our democracy. And splinter them such that what we are doing is replacing a system in which the common good is found through, through all of us in a collective process, in a, in a collective education system, and replacing that type of system with one in which market forces and wealth will set the political agenda, right? So it is splintering a democracy which has foundations to produce common good, and, and I think moving towards another that that is more about markets and, and wealth. Derek argues that the efforts to roll back democracy and privatize schools are especially intense in places where voters of color hold increasing sway. Maybe there's just a fear of too much democracy going on. If you fear democracy, then you fear public education and you fear the right to vote. And so those are two things that, that have, have to be stopped. You, got, you might go one step further and say, well, does everyone fear too much democracy? Is that, that all of America? I think we can narrow that. And you begin to look at where these pieces of legislation occur. Um, what you see is that the fear of democracy exists where there are more people of color. And I think the, the best example of seeing those forces come together, both the sort of race, history, education, and voting, is in North Carolina following the last recession, where uh, low-income students became the majority in public schools. Uh, President Obama had won uh, twice in that state, and the new legislature issued what was what what Reverend Barber called a war on poor people, and that meant two big things gerrymandering by race the, the voting districts to suppress African-American votes, making it harder for African-Americans to vote, and cutting education and expanding privatization as much as any other state in the nation during that time. So uh, unfortunately, this is a story of maybe wealth, race, education, and voting all coming together in a, in a perfect, uh, perfect storm. What we're seeing now is actually an old story because voting and education have been connected since the nation's founding, imperfect though it was. And the inverse is true as well. Attacks on public education have always been part of an effort to undermine democracy. I think what we have to understand was there is a vision, right, of voting and education being linked and part of democracy. And if you look across the arc of American history, what you will see is that each time that access to voting expanded, so did access to education and vice versa, right? And so if you look in the aftermath of the Civil War, in the immediate aftermath, right, there's two enormous phenomenon. It extends 
primarily to African-Americans who had been legally barred, but also to poor whites in the South. And it was a case that they said, look, if democracy is going to work in this place that's had a bunch of oligarchs running the system, we have to have public schools and we have to have more access to, to the ballot. And, and if we're going to have access to the ballot, we can't have people who aren't educated. Right? We see that happen there. By the same token, when the, the so-called redeemers come into power uh, at the end of Reconstruction, they say, we don't want democracy. So what must we do? Now, everyone knows the story of, of segregation generally, and they know voting generally, but they don't always appreciate how closely linked those two things were, right? That uh, African-Americans actually believe that if as long as the public school doors were open, they would still get access to the ballot, right? And so part, because literacy testing, and we can't overcome, right? And so part of the agenda was to, to restrict education access to stop, right, African-Americans from, from being able to overcome. Fast forward to Brown versus the Board of Education, where does uh, the NAACP LDF begin in trying to reopen the democracy that had been closed? They start with public schools and then they move to the voter rights. And so at least at those uh, three or four major points in history, what we see is that those two things, voting uh, and access to education, have, have never been separate. And so that's why in my book, I sort of emphasize that you have to understand that an attack on public education has always been Right? a central part of the attack on democracy itself. So it's not like they're just going after teachers or public education budgets for its own sake. It is part of a larger agenda, as Jennifer was, was referencing earlier. Now, of course, Derek wasn't the only historian on hand. Our own Jack Schneider also makes the case that there's a reason that efforts to undermine democracy and dismantle public education have so often gone hand in hand. My answer to this would be very similar to Derek's, except I would emphasize the piece about denying education and equal education to those who you would like to deny equal membership to, right? That those two things really do go hand in hand. So, you know, the positive version of this story is that if you want a democratic republic, you need to have public education, right? It can't be left to chance, that people need to be prepared to play an equal role in our society. But of course, education does this other thing. It raises people's expectations. It gives them a greater sense of themselves and their possibilities, right? It reaffirms the dignity and value of their lives. So if what you want is to curtail democracy, then you need to curtail education. And we can see that there's a logic here. Right. The logic is that educated people will not only be prepared to participate as equal citizens in society, but they'll also demand equal membership. And so this is one of the things that concerns us so much today is, you know, we are, of course, all advocates of public education. And so we would be outraged by these efforts to dismantle public education, even if that's all they were about. But of course, they're about something much bigger than that. It's about limiting opportunities and it's about limiting equal membership in our society. And as Derek alluded to earlier, it's often because people of color are making demands for equal membership. It's because economically marginalized people are making demands for equal membership. So these things have always gone hand in hand and they continue to go hand in hand. 
Next up, Noliwe Rooks. She's the chair of the Africana Studies program at Brown. She's a friend of the show and the author of a fantastic book that we refer to regularly. It's called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. And what I appreciate about Noliwe is that she sees connections in our politics that aren't always immediately apparent, like the way that wealthy individuals and organizations have used democracy in undemocratic ways to reach shape public education. As Jack and Derek were talking, and I think they're absolutely right, the tension is really between democracy and multiracial democracy. It's not like we use democracy as if it's this singular thing. And one of the things that I think you see around education in particular um, is the way that democracy functions for high status wealthy, well-connected people, um, often in and around think tanks and foundations like, you know, the, the Walmart family, fund, you know, the, the Broad Foundation. We know all of the foundation. I'm sure talking to educators, y'all know all of the, <laughs> the foundations that are seeding a lot of what's, you know, what's happening, seeding legislatures. But the point that I really want to make is they're exercising their democracy, right? It is unethical, but it's not illegal. They're anti-democratic, but the way that they're achieving their anti-democratic, anti-multiracial democratic ends is by marshalling a kind of access to democracy and status and legislating that's available to some and simply not available to others. And so you constantly see groups of what we call grassroots of parents of students, of various kinds of progressive legislators coming together to to begin to push back. And in some of the cracks and crevices, what we see is how decades of being outspent and out-organized means that those kinds of forces that are interested in more multiracial democracy, more multi-economic representations from across economic stratas, have an uphill climb. And that's what you're seeing in these state legislators, slaters, where these organizations have been funding particular ideological positions, particular politicians, (laughs) particular groups of people for whom it is to their benefit to not have multiracial. That's why, I mean, quite frankly, that's why, that's, that's where the connection is for me. And like Derek and Jack, Noliwe sees the current push to limit who gets to vote as having deep historical roots. It's when you're trying to expand democracy to include people that the framers never intended be included. The framers didn't intend. We've had eons at this point of folks coming back and backfilling and being sort of like, well, they left out the Native people who can't be citizens. They left out women. They left out, right? I mean, we've backfilled. Uh, But the framers didn't intend everybody to be considered a citizen. The framers did not intend for democracy to include everyone. And what we have at an ideological level and a political level is really groups of folks arguing for the framers' interpretation of who is a citizen, how that citizenship should work, who's left out and who benefits. 
Full disclosure, when I first came up with the idea for this event, I did not know that a backlash against teaching about racism and other quote-unquote divisive concepts would soon be sweeping the land. And yet, it's increasingly apparent that the push to constrain voting and this unprecedented wave of legislation that limits what teachers can talk about are related. In fact, many of the same organizations are behind both efforts. So what should we make of the furor over critical race theory and how it's being used. Nuliwe says it's all about politics. What we watched coming out of the Biden election was these progressive groups making many of these arguments about voting rights, about power, about why lines are longer in some places. And overwhelmingly, they were people of color in urban areas. Um, One of the connections that I I often see is the, the places where the vote was most closely watched. If you look at what's happening in education policy there in particular, you have people literally making those same arguments about voting and we need to to cut off voting. We need to stop it because what happened in Arizona, you had indigenous folks organized and pushed back in ways no one had ever seen. Right. And they were they were making claims to a past, an understanding of the past and an understanding of uh, the need to marshal a vote in order to protect their future. You had Latinx communities, again, in Arizona, neighborhoods organizing ways we had never seen before. We're seeing more union organizing than we've seen before in a variety of places. Um, We're seeing the brutality and the backlash, but we're seeing that progressive kind of workers banding together to unionize. You have younger folks who are like, that's not our reality. That's not what we believe. That's not who we're going to stand with. We are here for a different kind of future. Somebody figured out we need to stop (laughs) them having access to this information that overwhelmingly they're getting on social media and in schools. Like wait till, till old people figure out that a whole lot of education is happening for young people in social media, not in the classrooms. But, you know, like we're seeing them coming with views that are antithetical to what the parents and the grandparents have. And so somebody said, Let's stop this. <laughs> How are we going to win elections in the future if you got a bunch of young people saying, you know, power looks like this? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we often talk about is the weaponization of controversy to alienate people from an institution they believe in, right? If you want to get people to dismantle public education, what do you have to do? You have to convince them that the schools have gone off the rails, that they're no longer the institutions that they once knew and loved. And of course, this is true for more than just schools, right? The weaponization of controversy is an old political tactic. It's old uh, in its applications outside of education, but it's also old in its educational applications. Think about the Cold War and the way that threats of communism in the schools were used as a way to assert control over what teachers were doing in classrooms and to try to draw them towards a center-right or even far-right version of what is true, uh, what is valuable, what is real. Um, So these these are concerted, cynical power plays that 
um, are a part of a playbook here, right? And, and so, you know, to some extent, shame on us for not having anticipated this, those of us who were surprised by this, because what Noliwe was saying earlier is absolutely right, right? That there were things happening that made white people uncomfortable. And if we had real, brave, honest leadership on both sides, there's a way to get Americans to work through this, right? I think most Americans are in some place where with the right leadership, we could work towards this goal of racial equity and racial justice. But if you have cynical politicians who see this instead as an opportunity to polarize people, right? To weaponize the controversy and to use it to their advantage in multiple ways, including alienating them from their schools, by using fear, right? Facts don't matter. Fear is what matters. As for why that weaponization of controversy is so effective, well, Derek Black says that once again, we have to consider history. Well, I, I want to jump in quickly. I'll be brief and say that, I mean, I think there's another piece here that I agree with everything that's been said, but I also think, I mean, there is this question of like, why, why does it work? So you can be strategic and, but then, you know, why does it work? And I do think some of these politicians are true believers. I, I think my answer to why they're true believers and why it works is sort of two things. The, the nation was framed twice. The nation was framed the first time, you know, in, in the 1780s, uh, and then was framed again in, in 1860. I mean, the 14th Amendment completely reframes everything. And then the 15th Amendment, which changes voting, does the same. And that matters for two reasons, right? There, there is a substantial portion of America that continues to wage the war that was lost in, in 1865, culturally. You know, and I don't mean in any sophisticated strategic, but they just don't accept that, right? That they believe there's such a thing as states' rights, and that doesn't really make any sense after a 14th Amendment. They, they sort of think that the federal government is doing things that it can't do when the Constitution says it can. I think this also relates back and so I think that's tapped in over and over again. And what was one of the first things that, that they were worried about following the Civil War? It was, you know, the Massachusetts folks like, you know, Jack and Jennifer teaching Southern kids conspiracy theories about democracy, right? They weren't teaching conspiracy theories. They were teaching the new democracy that had been passed and they didn't like that. So they needed to run them back to, to Massachusetts, literally. So, so there's that. And then, you know, I think when I think about the Koch brothers, I thought it was a lot with my book. I mean, ultimately what they want, it does fit under the term democracy, as uh, no, no leeway said earlier, but it's actually a different democracy than the one that exists in our constitution, right? That they believe that voting allows the masses to extract wealth from, from them and that the constitution ought to prohibit it. Well, it actually doesn't prohibit it. It allows for it. And so what they're really trying to usher in is a, different type of constitutional democracy than the one that we currently have. And they make progress because there's a cultural part of, of our nation that doesn't accept the Civil War changed everything. I like that image of a 19th century Jack and Jennifer teaching kids conspiracy theories about democracy. Can't you just see Jack arriving on horseback with his slate? I can. Back to our panel and to this question of why public education is so vulnerable right now, Jack makes the case that it's precisely because the system has grown fairer and more equal over time. One of the benefits of providing public education for 13 years to every young person in America, and hopefully it will eventually be 17 years, is that their expectations get raised. They begin to make demands demands for equal access, equal treatment, and sometimes even equal outcomes, right? 
And so that, that, that violates what many people believe the spirit of America is, right? That it should be about shaking out unequal outcomes. Um, and there's an entire ideology to justify that. You know, a second piece that makes our educational system extraordinary, I feel like somebody said this on Twitter the other day about, you know, like we can't even fund libraries. Imagine if we were trying to build a public education system from scratch right now, where we said that it was going to be open access and taxpayer funded, right? This is a half trillion dollar annual process that we open up for all kids in America, $500 billion if you add together local, state, and federal expenditures on education. So, you know, not only could we not pass this today, but of course, it's something that is often in our history never been questioned, right? We have never questioned whether or not we should pay for this with our own taxpayer dollars, except if the value of the children who are being educated has been questioned. So we know that racially marginalized kids and economically marginalized kids haven't always been waved into that. And so one thing to bear in mind here is as our system becomes more fair and more inclusive, um, it also becomes more vulnerable because that expense is going to educate everybody, right? Not just the children of those who feel that their tax dollars ought to belong exclusively to them. Now, if you are a regular listener to this program, you may have heard the episode we did a few years back with No Leeway. It was number 33. It was called Segronomics, The Long History of Cashing In on Unequal Education. If so, then you already know that she doesn't share this sanguine view about public education and progress. She'll tell you that another part of our history is our willingness to tolerate idiosyncratic, even experimental forms of schooling for less advantaged kids. And that matters when we talk about the role of schools in preparing kids to be citizens. We are overwhelmingly comfortable with kinds of idiosyncratic forms of education for kids who are not considered high status, whatever that high status kind of looks like. We're being inundated right now with the knowledge about what has happened with indigenous kids in boarding schools. The language that went along with these indigenous boarding schools really was, was it, we, we need to kill the Indian to save the man, right? Like this is the literal <laughs> tagline that goes along with how, why we are forcibly removing indigenous children from their homes, from their communities, telling them that they have to dress a certain way, have to wear their hair in a certain way, have to behave in a certain way, or there are all these consequences. It's not a one-to-one -one kind of relationship between that and no excuses charter schools. You know, it's an overstatement to say that that's the same thing. But there is this undercurrent of we need to kill the cultures that you come from. That only happens for some kids in this country. So this idea of kind of predatory education, of of undereducation, of a different form of education for kids we don't consider high status, I would say is baked in. I know now, I know I'm not in total agreement here with some of my co panelists. I don't think that the history of American public education is one this great march toward democracy and uplift of all. In what we see, um, location by location, you don't even see a rhetoric that this is what it's supposed to be. There's a historian from the 30s and 40s, Horace Mann Bond, 
he's making an argument about how education is meant to, he's talking about the South, educate certain groups into a particular social order that they are imagined to needing to occupy. And, and I think that you can kind of trace some of that in various ways, if it's vocational education for people who don't want that, if it's these residential schools where you're removing children and, and killing the Indians, you know, to make the man, if it's these no excuses, charter schools, this undereducation, I think, goes hand in hand for me with the ideas of both democracy and public education in the U.S. You mean there, there, there is no good old day but there is, there are beacons, right? That, that because education actually cuts against the American norm. I mean, that that's we haven't said that yet. You know, we, you know, I certainly hold up all the time. At the end of the day, public education, which is a constitutional right in all fifty states, is in many respects inherently at odds with everything else that America does. The rest of America says, "Leave me alone. Don't tread on me." I mean, that's much of what the Constitution says. And public education says, we are coming to you to make you part of our community. And the rest of us are going to pay for it. Now, again, haven't always done it equally, haven't. But but as a conceptual level, like that doesn't make a lot of sense. So public education, unless you connect it as necessary for, for voting and that and that intelligent voting is necessary for the overall political system to actually survive, to not break down into chaos and pitchforks and violence, right? We have to be civil, right? And we have to not be at each other's throats. Again, I'm not saying we've ever got to the point where that's not it, but the concept of public education, it is the sufficient glue that makes a diverse nation with poor people, middle-class people, and wealthy people be able to coexist. I mean, as John Adams said, he actually said, it's more in the interest of the highest ranks of society that we have a public education system than the lowest ranks. He said, we need everyone to come together with a common experience because if those folks somehow or another just decide to pick up the guns rather than the ballot or to use their ballot strategically, we're in trouble, right? We being the sort of rich elites. And so, you know, education occupies this weird space where yes, it is, it is elevating and, and raising, stand, raising expectations as Jack suggests, but it is also conceptualized as a glue that, that can make this whole thing work together. And if what we have instead of that is a voucherized system or a charter system in which we all retreat to our own demographic and political silos, then if you think we're at each other right now, can you imagine that if we all actually literally have different high school football team mascots to go along with it, it's not going to be pretty at the end of the day. So Jack, I don't know what it's like for you when you're participating in one of these events, but I tend to sit in my Zoom box sort of clenched, waiting. Is it my turn? Is it my turn? And as a result, I don't always fully appreciate the content of of what's being put out there in a way that I might if I were just taking it in. And so it really wasn't until I started working on this episode that I heard what I think is this very interesting tension between you and Noliway in particular. And I would describe it this way, that you tend to have this very big, long-term view of public education as a narrative of progress. And she takes a somewhat bleaker view. And I wondered, one, if you agree with that assessment, and two, sort of how you would respond to that. 
you have this view, at least to my ears, as the history of public education in America as one of being slow but steady progress. And she takes a much bleaker view. And and I just wondered if, you know, is that is that a correct way to describe it? And do like do you do you look at it in this kind of glass three quarters full way? Now, I think it's important to hold both of those views at the same time. And the reason that I tend to articulate the more optimistic of those two views is in part because I tend to look at these things uh, with a wide-angle lens, meaning that if you step back and you look at 150 years of history, there really is a kind of upward arc here. Um, expanding access, increasing quality in the public education system. I think it's really hard to argue the opposite. Um, And I also make that case because I think it's important that somebody make the case that this is a system worth keeping, um, that the, the principles that animate the public education system and which people who were formerly excluded from it have fought so hard to apply to themselves, um, I think are some of the the most moving principles that we have in our society, uh, right? That every young person should be served, that we should be engaged in this process together, that education is about the making of not just citizens, but human beings, right? I think there's something very powerful there. Um, but I think it's also important that somebody make the case that we have consistently failed to achieve our high-minded ideals, that we have consistently excluded people, that we have never achieved equality, Um, that, you know, if you say these things side by side, I think it makes a case for preserving in its broad contours the system that we continue to have today, while also working diligently uh, and, you know, pouring into that system the resources that we never have uh, such that it does achieve the kinds of aims that I think are really inspiring uh, and which, again, we have never fully achieved. Back to our panel, a quick refresher. You've had a history lesson. You understand now why public education would make such a target and that attacks on public education have always been part of an effort to undermine democracy. But there's one more piece we haven't discussed yet. That would be the essential role that schools are supposed to play in shaping the next generation of voters. And, big surprise, civics education is at the very heart of the legislation banning classroom discussion of racism or other topics that make students feel uncomfortable. Noliwe says that this issue of comfort versus discomfort is one that teachers have to grapple with. That discomfort, I think, does as much to undermine the teaching of these subjects that make can make us uncomfortable and, quite frankly, with which we're rarely taught how to talk about. Like, no, people rarely teach us how to talk about race and racism, except to say we're all the same, racism is terrible, we shouldn't use certain words. Like we all learn that, or not everybody, but many of us learn that 
But how do you actually have those difficult conversations? How do you actually push back against the discomfort of your students when you are, if you're a quality educator, you're very concerned about the comfort of your students. And so if you're bringing up topics that's either making the children of color or the white children or people from a certain region are feeling like now I'm attacked here, right? How do we go through that? And so this issue of finding comfort in discomfort is, I believe, more important as a pedagogical necessity than we generally talk about. We need to acknowledge it and go right at it and talk about why the discomfort and why do we think discomfort means stop? Like that is not to let anyone be bullied, uh, attacked, you know, shamed. Like there's discomfort and there's incivility. Too often, I think that we do a disservice by assuming that any kind of feelings of I'm not completely feeling validated, or that's the fear a lot of white parents seem to have, that their their children are not completely feeling validated at every second of the day, that somehow they will not be able to go to whatever school the parents think that they should go to. Of course, even before the wave of anti-CRT legislation, schools were already falling short on civics education. Jack says that the narrowing of the curriculum is a big part of the problem. You know, when George W. Bush signed NCLB, this was not an unforeseen, unintended consequence. This was foreseen. He said, well, if the curriculum gets narrowed and teachers start teaching to the test, maybe that's a good thing, right? Maybe that's what these kids need, right? That's not what these kids need because these kids are our kids and all kids need a full liberal. And when I say liberal, I don't mean that in the the political sense. I mean that in the sense about which we talk about the curriculum, right? The full liberal curriculum, everything that you would want your own kid to have, you who are uh, out there who's listening, who may be a racially and economically privileged person like myself, everything I want for my own kid, I want for every kid in the curriculum. And then let's talk about what lies beyond the curriculum. And the number one thing that we should all be focused on with regard to this question, right? What should our schools be doing to prepare young people for citizenship and voting should be to be laser focused on integration, right? That that's not a part of the formal curriculum, but if schools are going to be democratic spaces where young people can learn to see the value in each other and be equally included. And of course, integrated schools, play a number of different roles here. And one of them is ensuring that marginalized kids don't get cut out because their interests are bound up with the most advantage. But also there's something really essential here about having kids go to school together and recognizing the dignity in each other. You know, related to that would be elevating the importance of equal treatment in our schools, right? Elevating the dignity of all young people in our schools such that they see themselves as equal participants in a democratic society. And here I'm thinking particularly about black and brown children and about uh, poor children, right? Kids who can learn through school that they actually do matter just as much as everybody else in our society. They learn it from their families, right? But they don't learn it from the rest of society. And here schools can be that good aberration that Derek talked about, right? That departure from what we traditionally see in American life. As for Derek Black, he says that he would go even further. 
I think actually civics and, and understanding of our, our history and the rule of law actually has to be uh, at the top of the list as opposed to just an equal participant. That, that makes some people uneasy, but all, my response is always that I cannot imagine a school that's fully committed to the to the civic humanity of individuals that somehow or another doesn't also think that math is important. You know, I just, that doesn't happen, right? Uh, and so I, I think we really need to elevate and put it first. And, and towards that, I, you know, critical literacy and critical media literacy, uh, as, you know, not just literacy, as Jack said, but critical literacy, which is all those skills, because I think as you see our larger society fracturing and the difficulty that young people have in actually interpreting information that, that they see, whether it be in a, in, on, on online in particular, that there's a set of skills that we've been able to slowly learn and they are sort of thrown into the deep end without any help. And, and I think that our society continues to eat itself unless we begin to proactively teach those civic and critical literacy skills. A big thank you to Noliwe Rooks and Derek Black for joining us to parse through this question of why democracy and public education are both under attack right now. Definitely check out Noliwe's book, Cutting School, and Derek's book, Schoolhouse Burning, if you haven't already. And thanks to the NEA for hosting the panel that this episode was distilled from. Jack and I will be right back to discuss the recent revelation about who is funding the quote-unquote big lie about election fraud. And big surprise, it's a familiar name in education reform circles. Okay, so we did that event back in in mid-July, and if anything, the situation looks even more dire than it did then. For one thing, we're learning a lot more about who the organizations and individuals are who are really behind this push to constrain voting and to kind of limit the definition of whose vote will count. And one of the really interesting and disturbing things to see is just how much overlap there is between those groups and individuals and the push to privatize education. And I'm thinking of a big story that came out very recently from Jane Mayer, one of my heroines in The New Yorker, about who exactly is funding the big lie. And she traces a lot of it back to a particular foundation in Wisconsin, and that would be the Bradley Foundation. Now, Jack, I know you're on vacation, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What, if anything, can you tell us about the Bradley Foundation? Uh, well, the Bradley Foundation in education has funded uh, school choice. They've been a major player in that regard. And, you know, at first you might not see any parallel whatsoever, right? It, it might be like the Gates Foundation funding on the one hand global health and on the other uh, American educational reform. But, you know, I think the thing that pieces this together is that the the fortune uh, of the Bradley family is one that has been dedicated to the idea of individuals rather than systems. 
that individuals should be able to determine for themselves what they want in our society. And if that's the case, uh, then, you know, markets make a lot more sense than politics. And if you can expose schools to markets, uh, then uh, that theoretically for them is going to increase the quality and it's going to amplify the freedoms of those individuals. And of course, uh, what they see in our current political system is a lack of freedom for individuals who are constrained by the kinds of things that the masses want to do. And so it's important then to shift people over into a market system, let them compete against each other with their dollars uh, in order to enact the kind of future that they want to see rather than uh, you know, haggling it out in uh, the public sphere. There's also a personal connection between the Bradley Foundation and our own Jack Schneider. Can you do you know of what I'm referring? No, but suddenly I'm I'm very scared and and ready to flee my Zoom box. Okay, so I'll give you I'm going to give you a hint. As we note in our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, the Bradley Foundation helped support a particular book that has been enormously influential in education reform circles. Do you know what the book is? Oh, is it is it Chubb and Moe? Yeah, <laughs> it you, is. You you're you got so excited. I hadn't said anything, but you started nodding. Yes, you could see in the glint in my eyes that I had it. Politics, markets, and America's schools. Yeah, uh, that's it's it's a classic. It um, really gets too much credit. I was about to say it launched it launched the school choice movement. It didn't. Uh, it gets as much credit for that as a nation at risk gets for launching the modern school reform movement, which is to say, you know, right place, right time. But um, Terry Moe and John Chubb, uh, then at the Hoover Institution, um, made what at the time, I can't remember if it's 1990 or 91, but anyway, uh, you get the idea, made what was at the time the strongest argument that had been made, and I think the strongest argument still that has been made for uh, school choice, you know, they they came just short of saying that it was a panacea. Um, you know, they they basically said that it was and then put a tiny little asterisk there. Well, and listeners are wondering, well, how does Jack come into this story? And well, our you're... closest listeners obviously <laughs> remember from our story about the outsized influence of economists that you once RA'd for Terry Moe. He wouldn't give me an RA-ship, Jennifer. That was that was something that he found morally reprehensible because it meant that he would have also had to pay for my tuition. That's how RA-ships work. He found that to be inconsistent with the the going market rate for labor. Um, and he articulated it very clearly. He said, you know, if you add together the tuition that I would have to pay for an RA and the mandatory uh, hourly wage, I would be paying you something like $75 an hour. I can go out on the street and get somebody uh, who would work for $20 an hour. And so that's the most that I'm going to pay you. But I'm hoping that you'll be willing to do it for less. 
<laughs> well, I'm really glad that we got to hear that story, Jack. And just learning about the role that the Bradley Foundation has been playing, it really got me thinking about how much of our current politics continues to be shaped by the grievances of these wealthy industrial families in the heartland from the like basically the period around the New Deal. So we have the Cokes, we have the Bradleys, he was also an industrialist. We have the DeVosses. Now, they were not industrialists, but they were so part of this kind of milieu where they thought that the New Deal represented government overreach. And so they set about spending, you know, the next 50, 60 years trying to make the situation right as they saw it, including trying to get rid of public education. And here we are all these years later. And, you know, when Jane Mayer's story came out, no one had even heard of Harry Bradley, right? But I feel like like this is a, a theme that you and I come back to regularly. And at least for me, it's really what prompted our book. Yeah. And I think the thing that I would echo, which you know, you and I have both said before, is that there is a coherent worldview here. There's a coherent ideology. It isn't simply that uh, you have a small number of wealthy families who are intent on stepping on everybody else. Um, they actually believe that what they're doing is right. And so I think, you know, a part of our project when we wrote that book was understanding what are the animating principles and values behind this effort to do something that so many people would be absolutely opposed to if they were aware of it. No, I know we have been for a while offering new Patreon supporters a free signed copy of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door if they come aboard at the $10 a month rate. But I really think, even though the book has been out for a while, that it is such a useful guide to understanding what is happening right now. So I want to re-up that offer. And if that interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. And one of the things you get in addition to that book, is you get to join us in the weeds. And that's a special area where Jack and I hold forth about some topic that's of great import, at least to us. And I've got a treat for him today. He doesn't know about this, but while he's been on his endless vacation, I've been coming up with a bit of a theory about how all this stuff, whether it's the backlash to critical race theory or now the ferocious politics around masks, how all this fits together. And I'm going to be running it by him. Jennifer, is it a vacation if I'm lugging my microphone around and uh, am constrained by your uh, rigorous podcasting schedule. That's that's not a question that I want you to answer. I see you leaning in. It's it's a it's like think of it as a Zen Cohen. Um, this is the time when I usually lean in and say something about you know well is it really free if you have to pay ten dollars a month to get it? But instead, I'm going to tell people that there's now an audiobook version of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and I don't know if you have thought about this, Jennifer, but I think between the two of us. We've got eight or nine free copies that we can give away. Uh, so I see your eyes lighting up there. Well, you'll hear from Jennifer in our next episode, I'm sure, about how you can acquire one of those uh, free copies of the audiobook. And 
you know, it would uh, it would be a violation of principle if I didn't say that uh, there are other ways to support the show as well. Um, please go on and uh, give us a rating uh, or a review wherever you get the show. That it helps people find the show and uh, potentially increases our reach there. As does your uh, direct outreach to friends and family members, colleagues who you think might enjoy the show. Um, we've got a Twitter handle that's at Have You Heard Pod. We love hearing from you. We've gotten some great episode ideas from you there. Although we've got such a huge backlog at this point, that um, really just let us know that you're listening. Uh, it's really fun to hear what you think about the show and to watch you engage your, uh, your social network there. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think that's about it for me. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to you theorizing a little bit here, Jennifer. Me too. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 